Macworld Podcast number 204 for August 11th, 2010. Hi, welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. I recently returned from a vacation on the Big Island of Hawaii, and in addition to speaking at the Hilo and Kona Mac users groups, I visited Hawaii Preparatory Academy's Energy Lab, a sustainable living and teaching center in Waimea. Dr. Bill Wicking, who runs the lab, was my host. I now turn the tables on Dr. Wicking by playing host to him in this episode of the podcast. If you have an interest in sustainable living, education, and Apple's role in each, you'll want to listen in. I rarely comment on what my guests have to say, but I'll make an exception here. Bill's an extremely articulate, passionate, and knowledgeable speaker. I was inspired by what he had to say, and I hope you will be too. Before we get to that interview, I have an exciting announcement. For a variety of reasons, least of which is that we're all pretty busy people, we've produced these podcasts every other week. Starting this week, however, that changes. We've had a lot of feedback that our listeners would like a weekly dose of the Macworld podcast, and so it shall be. So that I'll have time to do other things except sit in front of a microphone, we'll now rotate hosts. I'll continue to host the podcast every other week, and in the intervening weeks, the podcast will be hosted by another Macworld editor, Jason Snell and Philip Michaels of the Likely Candidates. So, if you've been looking for more roundtable editor discussions or more frequent episodes of the Pundit Showdown, this should brighten your life. It will certainly brighten mine. And now, Apple, Education, and the Energy Lab. I'm speaking with Dr. Bill Wicking, the director of Hawaii Preparatory Academy's Energy Lab, which is a sustainable teaching center located in the town of Waimea on Hawaii's Big Island. I was recently in Hawaii on vacation, and Bill was kind enough to give my daughter and me a tour of the Energy Lab, and I was blown away. The lab is crammed with Apple technology, and I thought Bill would be the perfect person to talk about not only green technology, but also Apple's place in it and education. Thanks for being here, Bill. My pleasure. So let's start with the Energy Lab. What is it and what purposes does it serve? Well, it's got three real main visions. Uh, First is education because we're a school. So if we're not doing our our main business, we're really uh, going the wrong direction. The second is research. So in that sense, we're really extending education outside the classroom to interact with kids other in other schools around the world, but also universities. So we we see this place as really a K-16, K-20 project. And then the last is outreach, which really extends beyond that to how do we meet the needs of uh, both the local community that could in, be local residents looking for renewable energy solutions, but also local farmers, um, sustainable developers, anyone who's really going to be um, looking at sustainability as a way to change their practices. Um, we're hoping to be a test bed for this. So we've got a platform for kids and we've got a platform for uh, say, college uh, graduate students and their professors, and we've got a platform for industrial people that want to come and test out their gear. And we hope that in this big um, mishmash or one-room schoolhouse that we represent, we can uh, get the best of all possible worlds. So it's like a synthesis. If you think of the Library of Alexandria, where all the, the ships that came through had to surrender all their reading documents and get, have them copied, we're a place where we hope that these people can meet each other and learn... Um, really the best or the most efficacious solutions for uh, the challenges that face us in the next uh, next century. 
Okay. Now, I think that one-room schoolhouse is an interesting point because when I walked in there, it really is very much an open space. Mm-hmm. So can you describe kind of how the kids will work in this environment? Sure. The The thing I love to tell people when they come in, especially teachers, is if you look around, there's no place to line kids up in a row or, I mean, the old – industrial education model and watch a PowerPoint presentation. There are a lot of presentation devices, but um, the people that we worked with in designing the facility said, you'll know you've got it right when you take a traditional teacher, bring them into the place, and they're a little bit uncomfortable because there's no teacher's desk to sit in front and say, class, be quiet, and put it up on the whiteboard. There are really, really neat learning spaces for kids, and I've been teaching long enough to know that uh, teenagers and younger kids like to be in their own little space and set up their own environment. And so we've got a little, a lot of little cubby holes and places where the kids can go and have creative crucibles, for lack of a better term. And then in the larger spaces, it's very open, welcoming. I think you, you and your daughter saw that when you came through here. It's a really nice, welcoming space, a lot of light. It's uh, passively lit. So I guess it's the exact opposite of office cubicles with fluorescent light. It's very naturally lit, open. um, And we're hoping that it promotes not just a new kind of learning, but we hope that it promotes a new kind of teaching so that when teachers come here, they sort of take off their old cloak and say, yeah, maybe I can teach in a different style here. And that's what I'm really hoping to to, um, put a dent in the universe to steal someone else's quote. Okay, so I think a lot of people don't see the connection between sustainable living and technology, and they believe that the greenest solutions are those that rely on old tech or no tech, yet your energy lab is full of high-tech technology. So Mm. explain how tech fits into this mix. Yeah, that's a really good question, Chris, because most people who feel that sustainability is is their mantra, you know, I mean – I wear Birkenstocks from time to time, but I'm not a Luddite, and I don't believe that the only way to do this is for us to go back and weave our own fabrics and grow our own food in the backyard. That's admirable, but um, being realistic, we live in the 21st century. We live in a time where the Internet is our communications device. We live in a milieu where um, communication is taken for granted, and so is this exchange of ideas. And we can't throw that out and say, well, um, we're just going to go back to the roots. I mean, it could look like Planet of the Apes in that kind of a situation if you take it all the way back. But what we're really saying is how do you marry the best of both worlds? So we're trying to find out how can you build a building. So this is speaking strictly from a building standpoint. This could be a library or an office building or anything. How do you design and build a building so that it has the minimum impact on its surroundings while having a very positive impact on the people that are inside it. So again, to give you the, the, the anti version of this, it's the exact opposite of sick building syndrome. You come into this building and it doesn't smell like a new building. It's a very welcoming space. And we did that by marrying old technologies and really very simple ideas, passive ventilations or passive ventilation systems like the Polynesians have had in their, um, you know, grass huts for centuries and centuries. We're really marrying common sense, passive uh, solutions with high-tech automation. And the high-tech is not, you know, like open the pod bay doors, Hal, I'm stuck outside. It's not so automated that you'd ever notice it. You do walk in the bathrooms and lights come on, but that's, I think, the limit of the automation that you might notice. The things that are automated are things like ventilation, uh, monitoring uh, air quality like carbon dioxide, temperature, and humidity. And there are many, many systems that, from a user standpoint, first seem very comfortable and then seem transparent. You don't even notice them unless you really look for them. But in the, at the same time, they use very, very little energy. And when we built the building, we had to 
um, abide by the lead platinum uh, specifications, which give us all sort of criteria for how much light there are in the rooms, how much airflow through the rooms, what the building was built out of, certain materials. And we're one of the first handful of buildings that are trying to reach the new um, benchmark for this, which is called the Living Building Challenge. And that's, if you're a builder, you'd be all over this. But let me put it this way. 20 years ago, if someone had said, here, you can go in a time machine and you'll see what lead is like in 20 years. Well, if you did the same thing 10 years into our future, Living Building Challenge will be the latest, hottest, greatest thing. And the idea is how do we build buildings so that they're, number one, comfortable to be in, but have a very low impact on the the planet as a whole in making them, living in them, and then disposing of them in, in the future. So as an example, talk about the... Um the CO2 sensors. Sure. Uh, CO2 has been linked to memory retention. If you've ever been in a, in a closed-in room or a poorly ventilated museum and you start yawning or not paying attention, we always thought that it was just a factor of the, your interest level or the teaching quality. We're, we've done some research now, and the latest research has linked carbon dioxide to memory retention. So we found numbers that are as high as six times the normal level of carbon dioxide, and anything over two times the normal level of carbon dioxide impairs your learning or your memory. Let's just put it that way. So we have CO2 sensors in all the spaces of the building. And if those get uh, spiked, say a bunch of kids go in the room, they close the door, they want to have a conversation. At a certain point, the ventilation system will open louvers, much like a flower opens when the sun comes out. It's completely quiet. The kids don't know that it's happening, but it, it ventilates the room. And if that doesn't work, then there's forced ventilation. And then as a last resort, the air conditioning system can come on. But it's all aimed at, number one, being comfortable, number two, being transparent, and number three, being efficient when we do it. Right. So when I took my tour, I couldn't help but notice the building full of Apple technology. There were MacBooks and iMacs and iPads everywhere. So where do Apple's products fit into the lab? Really good question, and the segue is perfect, because one of the criteria we had to meet for the Living Building Challenge was this long list called the Red List of Toxic Substances. And just uh, by sheer luck, we had the uh, fortune of dealing with Apple, which was uh, engaged in this this latest green um, movement of theirs to remove things like uh, brominated flame retardants and arsenic and other toxic substances from their materials. They've also got a very aggressive and very socially conscious um, platform of um, how do I say, cradle-to-grave responsibility. So if you buy a monitor and it has some toxic materials in it, you can bring that monitor back when you're done with it. So we had to meet those criteria in order to purchase and install those materials in the, in the campus or in, the, in the, the building. So for us to meet our numbers and to meet our uh, criteria, we had to use equipment that met these, these levels of sophistication. And it just... Apple happened to be doing it. We did it. It was perfect. Now, I would have used Apple anyway and and probably um, filed for an exemption to the materials list. But the fact that we could meet the materials list is great for us. It's great for Apple. And it's great as an example of how you can do things. And it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And it's easy to use. And uh, the users uh, find it very, very um, comfortable. That's the best word I can give you. Yeah. Now, on that same point, many people think that while Apple stuff is great for the general user, once you get into very vertical kinds of implementation, such as the lab, 
um, it's time to turn to Unix and uh, build your own boxes, yet you're using Macs. So why and what kind of compromises do you have to make, if any, outside of the, the green considerations? Yeah, another excellent question. And um, Apple, I mean, anyone who's dealt with Mac for a long time knows that you defended you know, the Mac as a toy and, and all the other criticisms we hear about it. But underneath the Mac is this rock-solid Unix platform. And we do uh, some very heavy-duty computational stuff with just plain, on, uh, plain old desktop Macs. Someone wrote me a week or so ago and said, is it really true you run your servers on 12 watts of power? Now, the interesting thing is an XServe in standby mode uses the same amount of power as a, uh, as a Mac Mini running full blast. So what we've chosen to do mm-hmm. to meet our energy numbers is we have Mac Minis all over the place using 12 watts of power. They're very efficient. And it's it's not just the energy numbers that we're saving on. It's the fact that you don't have to air condition these things. They don't produce a lot of waste heat. And for our uses, basically database, um, controlling the building, um, some weather data that we're recording, these sorts of operations don't need the heavy lifting, the heavy lifting of an XServe. And then we're relying on the cloud um, for a lot of our offsite backup, not so much for computation, but for offsite backup. And that's a whole new concept that is the cloud really part of a green solution for some, some uh, organizations. And we're finding that the hybrid of using the cloud, using the materials we have here, the, the very efficient servers. And also we don't have, but I think five or six desktop machines in the entire place. And it's a 6,000 square foot building. We have 40 laptops and they float all over the place. And the way those are green is, um, they use very little power. Uh, they're not left on a lot of the time. If you're done with them, you close them. So they tend to develop a culture of uh, conservation of resources just by the virtue of the fact that you have this small device and you're only using it when you need it. And I think that that's one of the, the key messages we're trying to get across to our students is that it doesn't it, conservation and sustainability doesn't have to be this ugly, nasty, draconian kind of a thing. It can be a very, very... Um, um, livable solution. You often hear educators talking about the distraction of portable devices like iPhones and iPods and iPads. Yet, as you say, you've got a lot of these portable devices around. Um, So how do you incorporate these into your curriculum? Hmm. Well, uh, uh, excellent question. There are two parts to this. And and, I mean, there there are three things you never talk about at at, uh, dinner, right? Is religion, sex, and politics. And if you bring up technology in the classroom to a group of educators, you're going to get the same kind of vociferous, polarized Balkanism. These guys will say, oh, no, you can't absolutely no phones. We have a basket in the front of the classroom. The kids put their phones in there when they walk in. Absolutely not, because my room is my sanctuary, and it's a sanctuary from technology. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum where um, either positively or negative, negatively, the technology is included in the curriculum. Now, that could be letting them sit down and watch movies or play Doodle Jump or, you know, Plants versus Zombies, or it could be right. um, – uh, how are we including this into the curriculum? And what I try to do is, is I've, I've worked with some very talented people and I've got a lot of very talented friends that, that we really feel passionately about education. As long as the tool that's brought into the classroom, whether it's a stone tablet or a scroll or a book or an iPad, is enhancing the experience and making the communication of ideas more efficacious, then that technology has a place in the classroom. If it doesn't, then it it shouldn't be in there. Now, the other side of this is that there are teachers that refuse to mold or adapt their fixed curriculum. They're the kind of folks that say, hey, it's May 12th and we're on page 315. They've always been on 315 and they will always be on 315 on that date. 
what we try to do is we try to break those people free from their calcification and really think outside the box. And my vision of this, and, and I know you and I have discussed this, is that I think we are given such an opportunity now with the internet and with portable devices that kids can access data. And the primary um, role of teachers now is facilitators in getting that data, developing critical um, learning so that these kids don't believe everything they see on there, and to um, make sure that the work that they're doing is authentic. So I've seen a million PowerPoint presentations that look pretty, and if you ask the student, explain this to me, and they can't tell you, you didn't do anything except teach them graphic arts. So what we're really hoping to do is we're trying to make sure that the technology that's in there is aiding the agenda of the of the teacher or of the mission of the school. And if it's a distraction, it shouldn't be in there. Now, that said, the iPad is is... I mean, it's a game changer. And um, if you're in education and you see how kids are using their phones and you see how transparent that use is for them, and then you see them use this textbook that was written 20 years ago or 10 years ago, and it was obsolete when they printed it, and it hasn't been updated, and it's fairly static. And yes, they can write their notes in it, and I have a ton of books at my house. I love books. The ability to write notes in a book is fantastic. But if I'm going to teach out of a book, and that book is old data, I lose credibility in my information with the kids because they can say, I can go on the web and get newer data. Now, what I need to, mm -hmm. to keep in mind with them is, yes, you can go on the web and get newer data, but is it vetted? Has it been edited? Are the facts in there correct? Are you going to tell people there's an atmosphere on the moon? Well, this kind of stuff floats around on the web all the time. And as a teacher, what you really have to do is more than just develop a critical, um, critical thinkers. You have to... Teach them to look at things with a bit of skepticism and to develop their own picture, their own truth, which isn't too far removed from what we did with textbooks. I mean, you read the textbook. Unfortunately, too much of education revolved around memorizing chunks of textbooks and seeing what good Xerox machines people could be. And I don't think mm -hmm. that that's education by any sense of the, by any stretch of the imagination. My vision of where education could be with the iPad is really threefold. I believe that it could be a very great access or a consumption device for media of all sorts. That said, if we take it to the next level, it could be something that not just augments but replaces what textbooks have been and becomes a, um, a viewer and a contributing tool for a group wear or a group experience with your collaborators. They could be the people in your class or they could be a class in Ghana for all you know. Um, and the teacher's role in that is really as a facilitator of making sure that that information is um, on point, um, accurate, and well put together. And then the third layer is 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 way beyond. And this is where the the um, iPad really busts out of where the computer is. And the, the metaphor I use for mm -hmm. this is if. You imagine that people using computers up to now as being like strapped in a chair below decks on an ocean liner and looking out of a porthole. You see what the ship goes by and you see at the exact speed of what goes by the ship. Well, now that they've unbolted this porthole and you can look around in all directions and we have an astronomy program, Starwalk, perfect example of this. And when people come into the energy lab, you hand them the iPad, you, they, you light up Starwalk and you have them lift it up and look at the constellations that are up above the sky and then down at the floor, the constellations that are going to rise in the evening. And it, it's an aha moment for them. It's the killer app because they get that this doesn't have to be a passive experience where you're viewing stuff that's coming through the porthole, back to my metaphor. 
It's really something that you're engaged with and you're changing how you interact with the data. And I can see all kinds of uses for this, from GIS to astronomy to history to sociology, mathematics. It's really, really fantastic. And it gives us an opportunity to reinvent how we look at educational technology and tools. And I say educational technology, including the books and the scrolls and the stone tablets that people used to use. Because it was always thought... Um, when I mean, a lot of authors have cited this, but when people started writing lessons down, the people that were um, using the oral tradition, so you're, you're thinking of Homer and those kinds of people, said, oh, this is the end of education. You can't look in the eyes of the person who wrote the book, so you can't tell if they're telling the truth. Well, think about that if you think of the technology of the book and then the, the technology of mass-produced books, so Gutenberg, and then you look at the computer, and then you look at the iPad, and how that transition, although much, much more rapid these days, is almost seamless in that it faces the same challenge from the existing authority in that it will uh, it'll destroy the learning experience, it will uh, remove all quality from the material that's going through there, you won't know what's true and what's not. This is an old argument, and what we have to do is we have to, as teachers and as, I mean, I think everybody's a teacher if they've got kids, um, as teachers, we have to look at this device and this technology, and we have to say, hmm, is this really enhancing the experience of what we're trying to do in an education um, scenario? But bigger than that, I think it can bust down the walls of the classroom. And like this building, it's going to be something that the traditional teachers are going to look at, and it's going to make them a little uncomfortable. But that's when we know we've got it right. Well, on that subject, and this is really a broader question about Apple and education, is whether Apple is is doing enough for education, and specifically even with the iPad. I mean, I know when we were in Hawaii, we were talking about this is a terrific platform, but we need tools to publish on it and to make interactive um, environments on it. And Apple seems to have said, well, here's the iPad, and and stepped back. Yeah, I'm not sure if... um, I, I. I don't know the, the inner workings of Apple. I've been a consumer, and I, I mean, I've, I've had Apple IIe since they came out in 76 and 78 and that sort of thing. So I've been part of the history of the, of the organization. And the, the real heyday for Apple in education was the 80s when every school had apples. And there was a generation of students and teachers that saw those as just a fixture in every classroom. It's like, well, of course you use the word processor over there. And you may have been using Multiplan for a spreadsheet and WordStar for a Word document. It's all pretty much the same. It's just we're using the same devices. Apple, when it got into doing the phones, really realized that there's a new consumer edge to this or a new consumer avenue. And without getting into all of the different motives of this, which I really don't know or, or understand, um, I can say that in education, they've really left it more to devices than to um, um, uh, programs. Uh, a case in mm-hmm. point is the Apple Learning Exchange, the ALI, is, is, is going through some, some changes these days. And a lot of educators are still using that. And I'm not sure what their plan is, if it's a, you know, a larger rollout. But here's the other thing is if you are making fantastic automobiles and everybody buys these automobiles, it's not the automobiles company to go out and teach you to be a better driver. And if, if we're rolling Porsche, if they're rolling Porsches and BMWs off the line and everybody's getting these and, and seeing, wow, I love driving, I'm going to do this and this and this with this tool – that's really where we are with these creative tools. Do I wish that Apple would be more engaged in education and see us as a, a viable portal for their devices? Absolutely. But is, is, are they standing in the way? I don't think so. But I, I also think that they're almost, 
it's almost the maturity of a company that they're putting the onus on us to decide how we're going to use these devices properly. One example would be the iPhone. So, for example, if you're the teacher that instead of saying, no, I put those in the basket when they walk in, if everybody had an iPhone, including the teachers, you could do your attendance on the iPhone. You could video conference with the iPhone. You could be using collaborative um, uh, uh, programs and software like Skype and so forth and, and whiteboard programs. As these things get developed, maybe through the Apple Store or the App Store or other uh, uh, venues, these things are going to become the way that we use the tool. So in other words, I might buy a BMW and use it to take my trash to the dump every week, or I might use it to just drive to the store. I might use it to drive really, really fast on a really cool mountain road. It's up to me to decide how I use that. And maybe that's where Apple is with these, these products is they make them very, very good and you can adapt them in any way possible, but it's up to you to do that. So here's the responsibility back on our teachers is we need teachers and educators, and I include parents in that, that are going to take up that mantle and they're going to say, hey, this is a really, really cool opportunity. I'm not going to just drive this thing to the dump and take out the trash. I'm going to take it a little bit further. I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm going to explore this a little bit. And there are three parts of this that are really key. And the first is fluency. And if you ask any teacher and any student, they'll tell you exactly the same thing. Maybe this is the one thing they agree on. And that is the smartest person in technology in the classroom is usually not the teacher, almost always. Mm -hmm. And the culture is that the kids have a lot more time. They share their information readily with each other, and they're not threatened by change. And if you think about teachers, they're usually the opposite. They have very little time. They have very little access to resources. And if their resources they do have are usually old, they very rarely collaborate with each other. And they're usually threatened by change. So you have these contrary cultures going on between educators and students. So naturally, the students are going to be adopting this stuff way, way faster. That's why I really believe that one of the keys to the solution in education is going to be that we include the kids in the creation of their document, for lack of a better term, so that the kids are generating their textbook. And I'm not saying they, they just write and it's all misspelled and there are no facts and, again, the atmosphere on the moon thing. I'm saying that if the kids know that they're contributing to a tapestry that, number one, other kids are going to read, and, number two, they're going to have a, a chance to produce a unique, authentic document that they had a part in creating – you compare that to a textbook that's four or five years old, I guarantee you that kids are going to jump at the opportunity to invent their experience. So as a teacher, I can tell you that when you give kids this opportunity to create their own experience, they're incredibly detailed about how their stuff looks. If they turn in a paper to you and they're misspelled words, they know that the only embarrassment is between you and them. If they, turn in, if they put something on the web and it's got misspelled words, they look silly and they don't want to look silly. So they take a lot more care, yeah. oddly enough. So I think that's one of our opportunities um, is letting the kids actually do that. So I said the three things. The first thing is we've got to get over that hurdle of, of the, the teachers being not so savvy about this stuff. So we really have to take up the mantle. And that could either happen by um, training, professional development. But I'm going to tell you that the most successful method has been to have kids explain it to teachers. So that's really a social aspect that we have to get over that the teacher's not the smartest person in the room on everything. They can be the wisest mm -hmm. person in the room, but they don't necessarily have to be the only person with the answers, which is a huge paradigm shift for a lot of teachers. They're used to being the smartest person in the room, and they're threatened by any other situation. So that said, right. training um, fluency is huge. And the second is that they have to be a little bit more um, less calcified, to use the word again, 
in their teaching. They, the, the whiteboard and the textbooks and the notebooks and the roll book and all that stuff, they're familiar tools. And you got to live a little past your comfort zone if you're going to grow. Unfortunately, a lot of teachers aren't the kind of people that are comfortable taking risks. And it's unusual to find um, teachers that really are comfortable with that. And I'm, I'm happy whenever I meet these people. Oddly enough, you'd think that it's just young teachers that do this. But in my experience, I met a guy who had been a, a teacher in, in Ireland and he retired at 60, came to the United States, and he was the number one web user. He put all of his chemistry labs online. He was the number one web user in the school, and the guy was 63 or 64 years old. I love that kind of story where we break these sort of uh, ideas, fixed ideas about, oh, it's only the young people who know how to use computers. So that's another thing we need to really break is um, we need to break those fixed structures that people find comfortable. And we also have to break the fixed structures that we use to assume certain things about certain people. And the last one is access to resources. So first is really you need to take responsibility for training yourself or learning this. The second is be comfortable breaking the established norms that you've established and you've said, this is how I teach and it's never going to change. If it never changes, you're not just boring the the kids, you're boring yourself. And then the third thing is really to seek um, funding for these things so that we change the way schools are thought of. Instead of them having bake sales to buy, you know, the basics, they should have the best. There was a line in a show I I saw that, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago where someone said that schools should be cathedrals and the competition to be in them should be fierce and they should be free for the people who use them and expensive for government to make. And I really buy that, that they should be the cathedrals of the 21st century. They should be the place where the best experience happens for our kids because they're the ones that are going to make the future happen. And so when we're, yeah. we're older, they're going to be the ones making the decisions. And this circularly comes back to the whole idea of sustainability. I've been teaching science for a long time, and I know that I've made a difference in some people's lives. Have I made them better scientists? Sure. Have I made them more enlightened uh, citizens? I hope. But, you know, we're at a stage now where if we don't change the way we're doing things, and the kids know this, if we don't change the way we're doing things, we're headed for a big crash. And I live in a place where there are waves, and I think I may have used this metaphor in, in, in chatting with you, Chris, is that there are two ways that you can approach waves if you're at the shore. One is to face the shore, and, and you're always surprised because the wave's going to hit you in the back of the head. And the other way is to face the waves and look beyond them and tell what's about to come. Now, we have to be better about doing this because we're responsible for training our kids for jobs that don't exist yet, and they're going to have many more jobs than we ever did growing up. And um, there's really no roadmap for that. So is it, a, is it a recipe? No. It's like saying you can give a recipe for brownies to just about anybody and they can make passable brownies. But the really good cooks are the ones that are um, adapting and modifying and, and taking the experience and putting it into every day. And it's new for them every day and it's new for the people that are tasting their food. As teachers, I think we need to be better chefs. We need to get off the recipes and start doing stuff like bringing this technology in, changing the way we teach. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to shake up the way we do things. And um, we can either embrace it, like uh, looking at the waves coming and and learn to surf the waves, or we can face the shore and and just be hit in the back of the head over and over again. Okay, so you're a passionate Apple user and and 
just generally a passionate guy. Um, Thanks. So um, let's say you were in the position of, uh, of walking into a school that needed a computer lab setup. And we know that, that schools, public schools in particular, are cutting corners to, to make ends meet any way they can. And yep. you have the opportunity to convince the school board to put in a Mac lab versus a PC lab. What do you say to that school board? Yeah, I, I would even take the, the step back further. I mean, you and I are, are peers in a, of a generation where Mac labs and computer labs were the way that computers were used in education. Yeah. And what I'm advocating is we toss that idea out because that's really old thinking. Um, and I'm susceptible to it, too. There is no computer lab in this building. There are laptops that you can take anywhere you want, but there's no computer lab. And intentionally, there's no computer lab. We want this technology to be ubiquitous. So here's a question that you could ask yourself. If you look at computer labs, and I've run a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been a technology you know, coordinator and for years and years and years. You look at a computer lab and you add up the number of hours in a day, and including weekends, that that computer lab is empty. And you're paying a huge amount of money, and you're paying a huge amount of money in not just electricity and in physical plant and keeping the things cool, but in the devices themselves, the software, the licenses, keeping them up to date. They, they're, after 18 months, you need to replace them. Okay, now flip the page. Think of their cell phones. Their cell phones are always being used for either voice communication or IM or email, which I've been told by my students is only for old people. (laughs) That really hurt my feelings. But the thing is that they say these phones are their communication device. Mm -hmm. It's how they interact with the digital world. That, and if you add their laptop where they're watching movies that they've downloaded off, you know, whatever, or their music, which is all digital now, they are are of a generation. Our students are of a generation where it's less equipment intensive and more data intensive. They don't care where it comes from. They just want it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we used to make people go to a room, make a reservation, sit down in front of a computer, and then use it. And that was their only experience with the data or with the, the resources that are available is, is really outmoded in a, in a lot of the ways that I grew up living in libraries, I got to tell you. And I love libraries. But the thing about a library is that if someone's checked out the book, you can't read the book. Mm-hmm. There's no such experience like that with a digital repository of information. Do we need libraries? I absolutely believe we do. Do we uh, need an education portal for kids to access data that is never really checked out? I absolutely think we do. And the synthesis of that and the solution to that is something that we're all going to cobble together and become comfortable with in the next 5, 10, 20 years. But that said, I believe that if someone said, we've got a certain amount of money and we want to train our kids to do this, I would say, first of all, let them have the cell phones in the classroom with certain rules of etiquette, um, use, um, um, and then the, 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 the other side of that bargain, we're saying, okay, you can leave your phone. You can bring your phones into the classroom. There's no chatting. There's no answering phone calls, even if it's an you know, emergency, which we always hear. But you know what? You have to, to meet your half of the bargain, which is you're going to include that in your curriculum somehow. You're going to say, I've put some resources online. I was browsing through the web last night at about 8 o'clock. I found these really cool links. I want you to look at those. So what you're doing is you're doing your part to include the technology into your curriculum. If there's an old saying that says, if you bring technology into your business, no matter what it is, selling mufflers or baking pies or education, if you bring technology into your business and don't fundamentally change the way you do that business, your business will suffer, not gain. And I believe that education is so victim to that because so many people, well-meaning people, were raised in an environment where they thought, hey, if I have spent more money for computers and I put that computer lab in there and it's all shiny and it has new chairs and it's air-conditioned and it looks clean, 
more people will, will learn. And I, I, I have to tell you that sadly it's not true. What we really need to do is we need to look at how are the kids using the information. They're using it on laptops. I think they're going to start using the iPads, especially when these devices sort of hybridize and converge into an iPad cell phone sort of a thing. If you look in my book bag, there's, there are three things in there. There's my iPhone, and there's my iPad, and there's my laptop. Now, do I wish I had one device that did all those things? Yeah, but do I want to have scrunched down to look at a little iPhone screen to do my word processing? Probably not. Do I want to lug around that big computer all the time? Probably not. Is there a solution out there? Yes. I don't know what it looks like. I'm imagining that it has a, 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 some sort of form factor like the iPad combined with the cloud, combined with fixed information that we feel safe about. You know, you have your drive at your house or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that education is really going to, if we follow the lead of the kids, if you ask the kids to buy, hey, kids, we've got $100,000. We want to put technology into the school of 500 people. You know what the kids would do is they would buy iPhones for everybody. Then they would buy iPads for everybody. And the last thing they would put in would probably be laptops. My guess is you'd probably have five or 10 desktop machines in the entire place because they would say, oh, yeah, we need to do that for yearbook or something. Mm-hmm. They, w- they would see how to use it in a most effective way. Anything else is we're, we're really trying to put round pegs into square holes. And um, unfortunately, that's where a lot of the technology is, is going. It doesn't have to be expensive, though. So um, I think as you and I chatted... You don't have to be well-funded and a completely privately endowed uh, system to do this. If you can appeal to the best use of these technologies, you're going to get way more bang for the buck. It's going to last longer. You're going to have more engagement. Your return on investment is going to be much, much higher. And it's going to include your curriculum instead of being aside your curriculum and your curriculum will get better too. So there's a way to make everybody win in this. It's the old, the old saying that the rising tide floats all boats. If we include technology in our curriculum wisely, our curriculum will be broken free. And that teacher can't be on page 315 on May 2nd again because it's just not available. It's not tolerated anymore. I'm a, a little bit of a, an insurgent educator, and I believe that one of the sneakiest ways that I've brought technology into the classroom is to do something in your classroom or in your friend's classroom, get a little group of them together and you start doing it and the kids talk to each other and they say, God, I'm doing this over in that classroom. And then they bring it up to their teachers and they say, how come we're not doing it in this classroom? And that's the best peer pressure there is because you're not leaning on your peers and saying, look, you need to learn this new program or look what I'm doing. Aren't I great? The kids are saying, this is really effective for Mm -hmm. me. And why can't that be included in part of our experience? Um, if, if you don't mind me going on a little bit about that, I'm, I'm discovering this like everybody else. I don't have the answers, but I can tell you that, um, I use, to use the old saying, I use something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And I, in my classroom, I use a tiger server with the old web log just because I'm comfortable with mm-hmm. it. Do I have the new web logs? Yeah. But I have this, um, this web log that runs for the entire year and I've set it up so that the entire weblog from the previous year is on there and the year before that. So my students come in and they look and they go, oh, yeah, this is what our homework is. And this is our reading. And these are some of the things that we can look on for web resources. I wonder what these guys were doing last year about this time. And they scroll through the thing and they find out what the experience was like. And the neat thing about that for them is they find, number one, that there are some things that are similar. But thankfully, and I hope it's more often than not, they find that I've changed things tremendously because I want to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the same page over and over again. But what they get is they get a periscope on not just what we're trying to cover, 
but the context of it, which is so important for education. Context is really the gift that we give our kids besides enthusiasm. We're saying, look, this is important. Here's why it's important. And I've spent years of my life studying this, and I'm not an idiot. And maybe it's worth your time too. And that's a meta message that we send to our kids that's just as important as you can do this. You shouldn't be discouraged. You can do anything you put your mind to. And that, I think, is the best gift that we can give anyone in the classroom. So how does the technology fit into that? Apple's stuff is usable. It's low maintenance. I, I mean, I have, uh, I don't know how many, I'd have to guess, but over 100 computers in this mm-hmm. building. And I am, I am tech support. And I'm also a teacher. And I run the building. And we do a lot of other cool things. It's not the kind of thing that you need a flock of, of, um, of, of you know, white-coated technology guys supporting you. If you keep it simple and you make your goals achievable, you can actually do this. And you don't have to be, um, you know, a technical genius to do this. You just keep your goals simple and the kids will help you out. And um, it really does, it's, it's not in the way, I guess is the best way I'd like to put it. My technology in this building is, is transparent. If someone says, I want to look something up on the web, they don't look for a computer or try to figure out, oh, I can't use the iPad or I have this upside down or do I need a laptop or a desktop? They just grab a device and they get to it somehow. And for them, that's their ultimate fluency is that they're completely comfortable with any delivery device for lack of a better term it's it's device neutral and process intensive cool so where can people learn more about the energy lab well um we have a web page which is uh www of course uh hpa.edu so hpa is short for hawaii preparatory academy we're um about 600 kids k through 12 um we are a boarding school and we have the fortunate um uh, instance to have this energy lab in a place where demonstrating sustainability is key. We have access to some of the best observatories for stars, observatories for volcanoes, observatories for atmosphere. Global warming was discovered just a few miles away from here, the, the global warming curve. Um, we have fantastic oceanography resources, and we're a, it's a really cool place to work. The kids who come here are here for a lot of different reasons, but when they leave here, they'll tell you a couple of things in common, and that is that it was a unique experience they couldn't get anywhere else, and that given a situation where they may not understand how to do something, they could figure it out. And I think that's our, our greatest success in this energy lab is we're here to ask questions and have the kids come up with the answers because they are going to be the change agents that go out in the world and make this place a better place. Absolutely right. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for joining me. My pleasure. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Bill Wicking and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPad, iPhone, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. See you next week.